Hey, welcome back to the WTF ABA podcast. I'm Holly Beth, host. Today, I am privileged to have on the show Rebecca Womack, behavior scientist and owner of Raw Consulting Solutions. Rebecca has a passion for quality care. Rebecca has extensive knowledge with payer contracts and was able to really give me uh, some insight on what we really need to be talking about in the field in terms of training, in terms of auditing and monitoring, and just making sure that we're setting everybody up for success. I hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the WTF ABA podcast, Rebecca. I appreciate having you on. Oh, thank you, Holly. Appreciate being here. Yeah, absolutely. I want to take a minute just to to talk to the listeners and let them know um, really what my hopes are for this podcast as as we continue to to talk and connect. Um, you are doing amazing work on, uh, I believe when we were talking prior, you were talking about it, the FWA, so the fraud, waste, and abuse that can happen um, when we're thinking about, you know, standardization across um, the companies or across the the uh, industry and then talking about compliance. So I'm really excited to have you on here because I feel like there's a lot of work to be done in any field, but especially in such a young field, right? There's lots of different paths people can take. And what I find so interesting about your path is that this touches so many of the other areas. It touches talent, it touches clinical, it touches really everything. Um, And so I I know we only have a short time together, so I can't get to it all, but I am excited to learn from you. Um, I'd like to open up by asking you what you're excited about with um, some of the projects that you're working on. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I am grateful to be able to talk about this topic because it's not very um, like thrilling or, you know, exciting. (laughs) We're talking about writing things down, like how exciting can that be? But it is really important. Um, And I'm, I'm very thankful to be involved in different projects right now. Um, I think the things that get me most excited are those projects that allow me to both engage with payers and providers around discussions regarding safeguarding services. So what that means is um, when I'm able to consult with organizations for, you know, maybe they've self-detected some areas that they need to improve or they're having to respond to an audit with a health plan, or maybe they're just being proactive and they want to have a check of their work to see how they're doing, or it's payers about different topics pertaining to the field, I get to understand and hear um, the whys behind what is done. And when there are deficiencies on the provider side, the great relief is that these are simple fixes. It's usually a gap in communication or a disconnect from um, understanding requirements by the payer or our generally accepted standards of care. And all of that makes me excited because those easy fixes mean that the recipient of services gets better services because those are addressed. And that's why I do any of it is um, when I think about just the why behind being in the field, it's to support 
clinical excellence for anybody who's getting ABA care, not just autistics um, or duly diagnosed, but anybody, any age, they deserve nothing less than excellence. Um, so I'm happy to do whatever I can to support that for them. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And it's not dry at all. It's actually very interesting. But of course, I did like, you know, Nancy Drew books growing up. So maybe that's why. But I think that it is really important um, for you to to talk about. And if I know the audience well, just you even saying checklist just got everybody excited. Um, so I think that, you know, when we're when you're talking about audits and you're talking about going into companies and working on um, some deficiencies, it's interesting that you that you approach um, approach it from a very like sounds like structured way. And so my question for you is when you go in to an organization, like, do you have a standard checklist that you go in that you're looking at? Um, and is that something that is used uh, across you know, the industry or something you designed yourself? Great question. So yes, um, I do use a standard process and that does include checklists based on the work that I'm doing. So um, for example, if I would go and do what I call a comprehensive clinical analysis, where I'll look at the whole of, you know, select client medical records, one of the checklists might be, I need, you know, every client's diagnostic report, their treatment plan, um, session notes for these CPT codes within 30 days. So I can make sure I have all that info. And then when I'm reviewing the different documents, like the treatment plan, the checklist I make um, is a, a checklist based off of several things. Um, first of all, the code of ethics. So I always say like the whole reason why I'm a behavior analyst is because I hold the code of ethics. If I didn't do that, I would lose my certification. So um, making sure, for example, that there's consent to uh, perform the assessment to implement the treatment plan. Then the plan content itself, um, the checklist is based off of the CASP practice guidelines for healthcare funders. So there are elements that should be included in a good plan. And then I will individualize the approach based on the payer or payers. So if they have maybe three or four different pairs, I'll ask for those policies to make sure that I have exactly what they're responsible for adhering to. And I incorporate those elements into the checklist that might be a little bit peculiar. So for example, if a health plan requires the violin to be done every six months, I will look to see, did they adhere to the payer policy with this treatment plan? So yes, and that all helps me become very systematic in looking at the information per, not just client, but per provider um, to start to begin to evaluate what the data says. So I'm going to geek out on you uh, a little bit here because my my husband does a lot of auditing um, oh. and is in the field as, as well. Um, and so I, I do understand the benefit of it and thinking about, you know, when you say audit, I'm sure that there's some people that are triggered by that word because they're normally scrambling um, to try to find, do we have everything? Are we going to pass this audit? Which it shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, we should get ahead of that and, and it should be something like, um, you know, part of your, your everyday routine, I guess. Um, I guess my question here with, um, 
with knowing what the providers, you know, need and, and having some standardization, how often would you suggest, you know, let's assume that the companies have the knowledge that they need. Um, how often would you say that they should be auditing their, their systems, their staff and, and all of that? Oh, that's a great question. So um, that really requires me to back up a little bit. I would say that companies should practice two things. One is monitoring and the second is auditing. So auditing is a practice that is typically done outside of the department. So if we're thinking about the clinical department, I'll just say that that's the department of behavioral analysts and the providers. Um, auditing should be, you know, people external to that department if they're from the organization. So maybe the compliance department or maybe they're in operations, but they should have some understanding about auditing practices. And in order then to determine, um, you know, the frequency of auditing, um, because this really is, it's an admin cost. It's not reimbursable. It's not billable to the health plan. Um, you, I always try to think about this in terms of it being an investment versus an administrative cost. You're investing in um, the health and well-being of the work products for the sake of your clients. So in order to determine how often that should occur, it's good to address it like you would a treatment plan. You assess, first of all, the level of need. So you go in and you do this broader assessment of maybe it's your session notes and you get really deep in understanding trends across areas that you need to work on in the session note, or maybe it's certain providers that are really struggling with some elements of documentation. That data set will tell you about the level of opportunity that's there for improvement. And then, so let's say it's, um, something that is just broadly described as average. I would recommend daily, um, and this is where we switch over to monitoring, and this is where you have a less formal, less organized approach to having contact with your documents to ensure that they meet requirements. So um, making sure that before you close out a session or you um, convert it into, in the practice management software, that they have the practice of double checking the note, not just to make sure that it's thoroughly completed, but that it's understandable, that it's um, detailing what happened to the level of medical necessity, and then they convert it. Or having um, a peer read the note to make sure that the peer has a, a good understanding of what you're trying to get across in, to, in the session note. Those are simple practices that take minutes and are not um, heavily um, incur costs for the organization. And then the auditing itself um, can really be done, again, based on, let's say if someone has average concerns, um, I would certainly start at a quarterly level, but maybe narrow it down to a monthly level um, where you're looking at month over month, what the performance is across session notes or treatment plans. And then at the same time, based on those results, you're taking corrective action internally to follow up and implement systems to help improve areas of, of weakness or vulnerability in the documentation. Yeah, that's so so true and so helpful, I, I think, for individuals um, who might be leading in ABA in a practice who might not have ABA experience to understand you know, all of that. I think it's important that, that you shared that. I also think that it does touch um, as I mentioned, you touch all of the, the different departments really with compliance and standardization. 
Um, but it's good for recruiting and HR to know too, what are the documents or what are the things that we need to be looking for for our staff in terms of compliance and making sure that we're, we're checking all the boxes to keep everybody safe and, um, and protected. Um, so I, I appreciate you unpacking that a little bit more um, and would agree um, just that, that it's a, it's so important to recognize those deficiencies. I will say, I think that there is a cost tied to it if you don't, um, you know, that, that maybe is not seen. I've seen, you know, companies that are, are missing out and being reimbursed because of a, a clerical error or an admin error, or it gets kicked back, um, or they don't, you know, bill it in time. And then that also affects the, you know, the families too getting billed late and they weren't anticipating it. And there's just a ripple effect, um, which is why I disagree. I think what you do is so fascinating because it, it really, it's what ties everything together. It's the glue. Um, and without investing in the glue, whatever you're building is just going to fall apart. And so I love what you do. Um, so what, what, um, Rebecca, if you don't mind me asking, but like, what do you think a commonly held belief about compliance or standardization, um, do you think that's misunderstood? So I think that when it comes to our field, when we hear those terms, I think a lot of people associate compliance programs or um, standards with other fields in healthcare. Like, you know, when I was in grad school and especially in just my first few years as being a professional in the field, I didn't hear those words. Um, and so it's not part of our language um, as a field. And so that, and I get it um, because we're not taught that in school. So why would we expect to encounter that in the professional workplace? But doing so then shortchanges us with the opportunity to evaluate how we're doing and to see if we're making sure that we're adhering to the payer policies. And the other piece is that when it comes to standards or standardizations, there's several things that we can be referring to. So ABA has um, a set of standards developed by the Council of Autism Service Providers I mentioned briefly called the um, Practice Guidelines for um, Funders of Healthcare is related to autism services. It's a long name. I can send send it to you after our talk today. Um, and so that details um, really from A to Z what ABA services should look like from the perspective of educating health plans. Um, and that includes what should go into a treatment plan and into an assessment and how um, case supervision should be carried out. While that is not the rule, you know, I think as behavior analysts, we often get very rule governed and we're very, you know, fixed on numbers and limits and we get like sweaty if people go outside those <laughs> realms. I'm talking about myself, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> when that happens, you know, I think, I think we lose sight of the purpose of the standards, which is to provide that framework, but it's not um, necessarily a hard and fast rule in every situation. And so when it comes to standards for our field, those are good things. However, um, what they don't trump is a payer's policy. And so sometimes, you know, um, there are situations where providers will get certain goals that are denied or maybe hours are reduced um, from authorization to authorization. And when they're engaging with the payer about it, they'll, in response, say, here, here are the CAS practice guidelines. Like, I am doing this according to the CAS practice guidelines. 
which the payer might appreciate, but they're not subject to them. Um, the provider is subject to the payer policy, and that's what matters. So it's really kind of not relevant to that conversation, which then potentially impacts the credibility of the provider because they're not understanding the severity or the scope of the payer contract that they're under. Um, you know, a payer is always, in my opinion, going to be open to someone who's advocating with credibility for their, their client. But if that person advocating is not aware of what they're supposed to be doing on their end in the first place when it comes to following the payer requirements, sending in the right format, the right content, it really hurts the ability to have that conversation at the table when their work product is being called to question. And then if you bring in, well, CASPA says this, the payer is going to be like, I'm, I'm not, I didn't hire CASPA. You know, I'm in a relationship with you, not them. No offense to CASPA, but you know what I mean? So it's kind of not relevant. Um, so I think that's something that our field would benefit from keeping that in perspective, you know, if they are a provider of services in healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I hear what you're saying and let me just, you know, see if this is, if I'm picking up on this as well is it's speaking the same language and knowing kind of what, um, what is motivating each person's conversation, right? And so when you're talking to the insurance on their side, they have guidelines that need to be met. They have their their fixed rules, um, right? And knowing that when you're coming to the, to the table to have that conversation, um, you need to know what their motivation is and what their expectations are. And then also to use their language to make sure that there's an understanding so that you guys can work together. Um, is that right? Is that kind of I know I, I kind of said it in more of a simplistic way and there's more to it, um, but would you, would you agree that that's important? Yeah. I, you know, cause sometimes I, I think you're right. Sometimes I think payers, I'm sorry, providers have this kind of inherent adversarial approach with payers. Like, Oh, they just don't want to spend money. They, um, they're holding the purse strings. They don't like ABA and we have to fight for everything. But I, I, I'm privileged to know a variety of different payers, and um, I have not met one yet who is like that. Um, one of the things I think that it's easy to forget is that a member or um, a customer could be another way of talking about a, a client. So that payer has their customer base or their members, which become our clients. And so, you know, you have to think about it. They're being protective of the service that they're providing for, which is to allow them access to healthcare through a plan from the providers. And so if this provider of the service is not giving their customer, which is your client, what the policy that they have says they should be getting, well, they absolutely have every, every right to say something about it. It's not about, um, you know, cost constraint. You know, I think, I, any pair that I have ever known wants their customer to do as well as possible, as quickly as possible, so that they can have, you know, a happy life. Like the whole point of um, becoming a behavior analyst and working in the field is to work yourself out of a job. That's success, right? So then people are free. But that rub comes in if you're not doing your part as a provider 
because you're just not aware. And I, I think like I mentioned this a little bit before, but the caveat here is that also too, like our, our coursework and the things that we should be um, learning in school to become a behavior analyst don't require this level of specificity when it comes to healthcare. So um, I think there's a reason why we're, we're kind of struggling a little bit in this area. Yeah, that's an excellent point, right? Is that you can only do what you know. Yeah. Um, so when you go into companies and you're consulting, um, do you like what do you put in place so that you know when BCBAs are coming in or the already existing BCBAs that they have access to um, to the providers' uh, needs and, and making sure that they understand each provider because it it is a, you know there's a lot BCBAs have so much on their plate of what they're trying to uh, accomplish um, but have you seen any anything where there's like a click a quick guide or something put in place to uh, protect the client um, from the provider's perspective and then also protect um, and and help the BCBA uh, be able to reach you know, and provide what they need to. Because like you said, they're not doing it intentionally. So what can we do to help? That's a wonderful question. So I think the first thing I would point any organization to that provides ABA services is the CASP organizational guidelines. And so this is a larger, it's an ebook. Um, it has many chapters. It, half of it is published, I believe. And I think there's more chapters still coming out that talks about from an org perspective, um, anything from, you know, having a compliance department to um, KPI, our key performance indicators to business models, all of that is covered. Clinical excellence is covered. And so if an organization is young or maybe they're not feeling very confident in their processes, that would be a first place to look to see, because it's written um, by, um, leaders in the field that are cast members who all have a, a lot of experience. And then um, I think the other thing is that, so when I come and um, provide services to an organization, the reason is really why I'm there in the first place um, is based on what they are needing. So um, I'll recommend, you know, it's not uncommon to recommend typically training on, on, topics that pertain to documentation. So not just how to write, but how to deliver the CPT codes according to the spirit of the codes in the payer um, policy. So this is something, I'm sorry to go off a bit on the sidebar, that is really one of the biggest links in the chains that lead to why people get in trouble in the first place. A lot of people um, have some understanding of the CPT codes, but not a full understanding, or they think, um, you know, some codes can be used in a certain way when they actually can't, and the payer policy specifies that. And it's all just issues around education and communication. But why that's so important is because they, what they do, they write, right? Like what you do in a session, you write down, and that becomes part of a legal document in the client's medical record, which the payer sees and has to follow up on. So um, I don't, I don't, you know, think I've never not recommended further education around the CPT codes and then how to take that information and translate that over into um, a medical record or a document like a session note. Um, but so, so back to that question, training is something I always recommend for um, CPT codes. And then based on what they're doing, 
um, if they don't have a system for reviewing session notes, I created a, a template that's part of the chapter on documentation in the CASP organizational guidelines. They can use that or they can tailor one to their own needs and preferences. But the idea is to start to practice reviewing session notes and getting information on what people are writing and what that looks like on paper. The one thing I just wanted to say about that piece really quick too is that when you review a session note, you have to be really careful to not overgeneralize the act of what you're doing. Um, reviewing a session note is just that you're looking at what someone has written down and seeing if it meets the elements on a page. What you're not doing though is speaking to what they actually did in the session. So that's a different, that's a different lens. Um, so for example, if I were with you and um, I was watching you as an RBT deliver a session and I would be looking for how do you adhere to the service of 97153? Are you delivering the adaptive behavior protocol according to what is written in the treatment plan? Are you capturing the relevant information in the session about the client's response to intervention? And is that getting accurately conveyed on the session note? That's one picture. The other picture is if I didn't see that, and then I was just reviewing what you wrote down, all I know is what you wrote. But I don't know is if you are getting the pieces of information that are relevant to a medically necessary service and seeing that as for what it is and then documenting that on a session note. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, a little bit. So I, I guess I think so. So let me try. Um, so what I'm hearing is when, um, cause I've seen quite a bit of session notes and I actually, when I was a trainer in another life, um, I trained on how to write session notes oh. for RBTs very early on. Um, and so I'm sure that things have improved since then. Um, and I, I can already tell you they have. Um, so, you know, if you were to think about going to an OT or PT and you get the notes back, everything is very, uh, medically driven, right? It's very clear and clean. Um, whereas I think with ABA again, too, like some of the, the training is for that I think could be, you know, lacking possibly is for RBTs and BTs to understand the why and to really view it as a medical, you know, um, record and to, um, and to learn the terminologies that, uh, that explain that, right. Of, of how to say that, because I don't think that it comes off naturally. Right. And so when you're writing a note, it's very anecdotal. It's very, you know, our highlight is this, we had fun playing this, you know, whatever that it, it could be that way instead of focusing on, um, what the payers are listening for. And, and actually truly like to your point, what is important right? They're not wrong. The payers aren't wrong. Um, they want to know, like, how is it that you're helping with this, um, with this need? Um, and I think it's important to remember that this is, this is medical. And, you know, speaking as somebody who's autistic, I would say that um, it's, it's okay to pinpoint exactly where the deficits are um, that we're working on me medically and address them because otherwise you do us a disservice at the end of the day, if we're not very clear and intentional on what we're doing to improve our medical deficit um, in a way. So I think that it, it is important. I like how you said that lens of what you're looking for when you're looking at a note, because um, I feel like there's still 
unknowns there that I, that I've never taken time to think about until you just said it. You know, and you mentioned something that I'm like, oh, like bulb in my head that um, like I've created trainings around this too. And it's the simple thing around the why. So expectation management for not just RBTs, but BCBAs. So remember, we don't get this in grad school and in the RBT task list, E4 specifically says that RBT should be trained in part to describe what happened during a session. So the BACB, you know, doesn't get into um, the weeds and tells you, you know, what that should look like, but right, you know, that is a responsibility that they need to learn as a skill um, to become an RBT. So um, what's really important and might seem overly simplistic, but needs to happen as a part of training on documentation for any provider is why you have to do it. And the why starts with our code of ethics. You know, we're required to uphold our um, payer contracts. Some state licensure laws actually embed the code into their administrative code. So it's actually law. And so you have to, you know, follow the law to keep your license. But then there's also, you know, the issue of um, stakeholders, not just payers, but caregivers, other providers. The client themselves, this is a record that will follow them the rest of their lives. And there's also you as the provider. So a session note is a detailed record of what you did, why you did it, and the impact it had on the client. And all of that brings immense clinical value over time to help you understand thoroughly what was done and how that impacts what you do next. Uh, it's a very different picture than saying, Okay, after the service, by the way, make sure you write this stuff down because um, you have to turn that in and, you know, hurry up and get it done in 15 minutes, right? Like that's a very different um, <laughs> way of approaching it. Yeah, well, definitely. And that is the old, you know, old school. I've, I've been in around for in about 18 years. So I know that that was the old school way. But, you know, I think that um, that's interesting. So I'm thinking too, just outside of, of how it works in other other um, healthcare, like thinking about um, the Mayo Clinic or, or going into a provider, they always say, well, let me see what your other provider did. And, and they're looking for that connection of, of this was happening in a time in your life. And, oh, let's connect the dots. We were also making some, you know, medicine changes or whatever. So being very specific, I think is important, even when you're thinking about um, shared care, um, that's going to be really important. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I told you this was not boring at all. This is all very, very fascinating and important topics to to have discussions about. And especially to like thinking about it from the RBT's perspective or the, you know, or the BCBA's perspective of not, if they don't know, again, just going back to that is that there's, um, there's not, they're not able to do better if they're not trained and then that they're not given feedback and performance to be able to learn how they can improve. So yeah, I can't wait. I will share the CASP guidelines. I know it's important. Um, so I will share that in um, and link that into the notes. But I don't know if, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole um, if you don't want to join me. Um, but what happens when providers are not compliant or stakeholders? So what happens if you're working um, for an organization um, that that doesn't necessarily follow the code or isn't focused on, on this, um, you know, how can we protect, um, employees and patients and, and all of that, um, 
what's holding the the agencies or the um, practices accountable, I guess, is my question. So, I mean, all of those are really good questions and good thoughts. You know, um, if an organization um, isn't compliant, like broadly speaking, the client services are at risk. And this is because, you know, a variety of things can happen. Um, their contract with the health plan can go under what's called a prepayment review. So the ability to get timely paid claims um, slows way, way down because everything has to, whatever you submit has to be approved first before they'll pay out of it and versus a retrospective review. Um, another thing is that you can, depending on the severity of the lack of compliance, lose your ability to provide services with that payer overall. Like they will just sever their contract with you. And what this means is that the client, um, whether it's through inability to sustain services because of a prepayment review or, um, you know, you lose a contract, their services are in jeopardy to some level. And that's, that's the concern. And I don't think, you know, I mean, I hope, can't speak to every organization, but I don't think anybody goes out there trying to do something intentionally wrong. And that's why it's so important to practice both auditing and monitoring. Um, the, one of the things that I forgot to mention about the auditing practice is that it's a little bit more formal. It should be done outside of your, you know, the auditing should be done outside of your department, like I mentioned with compliance or um, maybe operations or an external company can come in and take a look, an unbiased look. But that that disconnect is important because it more closely mirrors an actual external audit process and it has that objectivity that's there. Because you want someone, you know, a person to read a note and get a clear picture and not be like, oh, this is Steve over in, you know, ABZ clinic. I know how he writes. He meant to do a better job. I'll just pass him, you know? <laughs> like, can't have that. Right, though. It's so true that it does, it needs to mimic it. And, um, and I would agree with you, I would say that a large majority of companies that, you know, I would say 95 to 98% of them, right, there's that that percent that um, isn't doing great, but um, it does not speak for the practices as a whole. Um, it's just a little, you know, um, and distracting. So I would agree with you that everybody by large, I said, everybody remember before I started the podcast, I said I was going to work on totalities. Um, so disregard that. But my, um, I, I guess, um, to your point of, of making sure that there, there is some objectivity and that we're, we're giving feedback and we're actually coaching and leading people, um, and, and helping and knowing that we're helping them by saying, Hey, I'm going to need you to rewrite that note. Um, and doing some sort of, um, performance management, uh, based on what we're seeing across the, across the way. And then also from a company standpoint, knowing what we have to fix in our training, if it is a, if it starts with training and then it's performance management and all of that. Um, so, so yeah, I would, I would definitely, agree that there needs to be some separation so that and you know my good gracious and um and then not doing your best work um because i think that when i'm doing interviews i hear that um as well when i say you know what are you looking for and why are you looking to leave 
some people just don't know if they're doing a good job or not. And they feel like they no longer know if their North star is their North star. And they just feel a little bit lost without having very clear direction. Um, especially to your point about, and I guess I want to get your, well, I want to get your thought on this because you, you did mention like, obviously ABA is a science. So you guys do like you're structured and you like your predictability and, and all of that. And then come into this world where that predictability, that science of A plus B equals this is kind of gone. Um, and you're missing some piece and, and that does affect the science, but you just don't know, right? Um, would you agree with that or it's okay if you don't? I So I think what is affected is it's not so much the science because the science is fixed, like the, the research is fixed, but what is impacted is the person's ability to navigate variables that are foreign to them like understanding okay now that i'm a provider what does that even mean what is a model of medical care like you know sometimes i think providers or behavioralists do themselves a disservice by not really fully like contemplating the fact that they are in the healthcare field so Anytime that, you know, you have to go to the hospital or go see a doctor, it's not, you're not questioning, like, am I really here at the doctor's office? Like you, you see the environment, there are cues in the environment that tell you whether it's a smell or sounds or sights or um, certain statements that are said, I am in healthcare, I am receiving healthcare, I'm with a doctor right now, this is what healthcare is, I'm receiving services. But I think we then take our role as a behavior analyst or an RBT and we're like, well, I'm going to Mrs. Smith's house. I'm going to the center down the street and I'm working with so-and-so not recognizing that now that family looks at you as that doctor in that doctor room, that environment, that is the healthcare model. And so the model still is identify, detect and isolate markers of symptomology, evaluate and test that condition to understand what, um, evidence-based treatments should be selected to provide the most effective and efficient treatment possible for symptom amelioration or remediation. It's it's the same process, but a very different path because the way that we deliver care and services also is replicated in academia. It's in schools, um, it's in day centers, it's used with all ages. So I think there's that um, it's harder to identify the distinctiveness of the act of ABA services as healthcare because it is so prevalent in other areas for a behavior analyst's life yeah. or an RBT's no, life that's, as well. That's, that's so true. Um, do you ever see um, and go to a movie and you think, I know that there's more there that I'm going to process later because there was a lot to take in. That's how I feel right now, Rebecca. I think that you just gave such, such good insight and, and things that, um, that need some reflection on to, to see, are we, what can we do to understand it a little bit more? And I'm sure you're probably going to direct me back to the CASP guidelines, but I think that having this, you know, conversation is, is really helpful um, I think it's also helpful for talent and, you know, advisors when they're talking about the job, because you're always asked, what's a day in the life look like, right? And I think tying it into medical mm -hmm. from the beginning mm -hmm. is important. 
um, you know, in terms of, you know, how the training is or, or what the expectations are from the get go is, you know, talking about um, the position as healthcare. Um, because I think a lot of people um, might still look at it as going in and just, you know, not just, but like babysitting or education or, or whatnot, that there is still that, that component of being able to tie it back to the fact that what would you expect out of from your own medical provider? Because ABA is not cheap. You know, the medical, it's not, it's expensive and it's not, um, and, and there's an, a real investment from the, from the, um, caretakers, um, to actively, you know, engage in sessions, but then also to work on themselves and um, in the environment. And it's just, there's, there's a lot to take into it. And so if you're not getting um, the care that you should, and, and it, you know, I think that, again, I don't know, I'm just going to, you know, step off my soapbox here, but I think that it's important to remember that the services that we are providing are very impactful um, and that, you know, should be, um, you know, at the highest standard of excellence um, at all times, you know? You know, I agree with you. And I think sometimes, um, sometimes that can be lost, again, because in our role as providers, whether you're RBT or behavior analyst, it can feel like Groundhog Day. And also, too, you know, you wear... Most places you don't have to wear a uniform like scrubs, so you're wearing um, normal clothes, quote unquote. And so those discriminative stimuli that would typically, those, those signals that would typically indicate, oh, I'm in an atmosphere of professionalism or in healthcare, they're absent. So you have to, it really is a mindset that you have to work at to put in your brain, I am delivering a service um, right now, so this is how my conduct should look. Because you know, sometimes I'll give this analogy, like imagine if you were, um, you know, going to see like a psychologist and talk about something really awful that happened in your life. And you're talking to the psychologist and then he like leans over and like looks out the room and says like, Hey, can you get me subway? Like while you're out, hold on, can you give me subway? Okay, great. And then you're like, okay, I'm just going to finish pouring out my heart to you. And then, like, maybe he sends a text or answers a call from, like, his partner or something like that. Like, we wouldn't stand for that. I hope not we wouldn't stand for that, right? And so we have to think about our services being uninterruptible. We're unavailable to the world. We're, our, our only focus is the code that we're delivering at the time and the client doing our best that we can. Um and I, I hope that every person out there um, who's a service recipient demands that and no less. You shouldn't. I mean, you're paying your money. You're, these are, we're not going to get these days back as a, as a recipient of services. So you should absolutely get excellent service every single time. doesn't mean it's going to be perfect, but as long as that provider is doing their best, that's what I would hope that you would hope for for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and agreed. It doesn't have to be perfect. There's times you go to the doctor and they can't diagnose or be able to yeah. treat, right? And that's okay. It takes right. some time sometimes. Yep. I mean, um, so yeah, no, I think exactly what you said makes perfect sense. Um, and yeah, and you know, to add to that a little bit is that, 
you know, the, the clients, even though that they might not be able to interrupt and say, Hey, you know, hello, like we were in the middle of doing this puzzle and I was having fun with you. And, you know, can you not talk, you know, stop talking about your weekend for a minute? Um, you know, they're, they, they do know and understand, um, and pay attention to everything. So how we're showing up with them, no matter who's around, um, whether, you know, the, the caretakers are there or other, you know, members is always remembering that, that their expectation, whether they're able to vocalize it or not is please, you know, give me the best. Um, I'll share a quick example if I might. Yeah. When I was young, I remember, you know, I didn't, I didn't speak, um, really well, um, and I remember working with a, a speech pathologist. Gosh, I, I must have been, we moved. So I must have been younger than than kindergarten. But I remember them saying, oh, she's so cute. And just like, you know, kind of passing it off. And I was frustrated. I was like, no, you don't understand. Like ours are important. <laughs> like I cannot get things out. I'm struggling here. And I like, I remember being in the car and trying really hard and being by myself and like, you know, trying really hard to make sense of how language works. And then hearing somebody just say, like, I was so cute in the way that I talked was so defeating as, as a child, just being like, well, who's going to help me? Like, no, please work me. Like, I, I want to be able to communicate. I'm frustrated. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think it's something to remember is that even though, you know, your client might be frustrated, they, they still want to be able to, um, have their needs met and, you know, in a, in a way that's, um, that is, uh, healthy, um, I guess is the, the only word I can think of, but does that make sense? It does. And, you know, that's something that, um, over time, you know, is the consideration of the limitations around expressive and receptive communication. I started to embed into my professional practice, so, for example, if, you know, I was going to interview the parents about a, their child who was sitting there, I let the parents know, hey, when we talk about behaviors that are challenging, um, do you mind if we excuse your son or daughter um, or ask their permission? Because whether or not they can expressively or receptively indicate that this, you know, matters or they hear, doesn't matter at all. They are there and what they know or what you know they know you're not fully aware of that, but you should still honor their presence because you're you're the one who's designing the treatment in the first place. But I think that's something that we can easily take for granted. Like, oh, she's nonverbal, he's nonverbal, it's okay. So they were doing blah, 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 you know, and that's it, like life happens, I understand, but it's just important to just slow down and remember the point of what you're doing in the first place as a healthcare provider. Yeah. Yeah. And the why, and I would urge if there's any teachers out there or peer professionals to, to keep that in mind too. Um, I'll share one more story. I was, I was working with, um, an individual, um, who was non-vocal. Um, he did communicate with a, with a, um, augmented device and we communicated. I felt like sometimes telepathically, I was like, I got you. Um, but for the most part, severely uh, aggressive um, and uh, with behaviors. But anyway, we were sitting there one time, it was during lunch, and one of the paraprofessionals was just talking about their mom in a very negative light. And, you know, I try to skirt the issue and say, hey, you know, like he's he's paying attention and like, you know, 
and they did not they did not um heed my warning um at all and just felt like he didn't um wouldn't understand or it was no big deal kind of shrugged it off which you know um if you know anything about me um it was not not something that uh I was too happy about but anyway he reached across the table and he punched her in the face across you know and I was like hey buddy let's go talk and so we we came out and I said listen I understand because I probably would have want to punch her too, but here's why we can't punch people that we want to punch. And we just had a conversation about it. But if you were, you know, in the school and just looked black and white, you know, he punched somebody, but let's talk about why and let's take some ownership too. And, and how we're creating an environment for them, right? There has to be some ownership there. Well, I want to switch gears if that's okay with you and um, go to the, WTF Fast Five, if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. Well, okay. Number one, what has you classically conditioned to respond? Um, that one is easy. It's this sounds weird because I was like, I'm gonna sound like I'm a vampire, but bear with me. Whenever I see lights outside a certain light, whether it's the sunlight from a sunrise or the golden light from a sunset. I run outside, like I see the light. I'm like, oh, I don't care what I'm doing. I've been washing dishes. So I don't go into a casket. I actually go outside. So I want to give that caveat. But I just love the, the times of day where there's the, those few moments where the sky just is brilliant and it's just very calming and helps kind of put life into perspective. So um, when I see this certain kind of light, I run outside no matter what's going on. I love that, that um, I'm picturing um... – Twilight, as long as you're not glittering in the sun, we're, we're good. But <laughs> that sounds amazing. And before we hit play or record, uh, rather, before we hit record, um, I was asking Rebecca where she lives and she's like, oh, can, can you hear the sheep? Um, so it just, <laughs> it just sounds like, you know, you live in, in such a, a great place to be able to step outside and, and be in the moment. Um, with nature. So I love that answer. Second question, what advice did you learn from a mentor that you still use today? Oh, that, that's a good one. Um, and this has been formative. So if I have a problem, I need to also bring a solution to the table. And I, that was very like novel to me. I was like, wait, what? I'm, I want you to fix my problem. You know, boss, like that's why I'm coming to you in the first place. But it really taught me to how, how to critically think through challenges. And so now um, when it comes to public policy issues and advocacy, um, if I'm not really, you know, if I'm concerned about an element in a payer policy, I'll highlight it, identify why, and then provide a few solutions so that they don't have to think for it themselves. They can just, it makes it easier on their end. Um, and it also helps, it helps with creatively working through challenges on a daily basis. They don't you start to see them less as challenges and more of opportunities to rework the situation. I like that. Um, I think that uh, that's really good advice. And I think your own little twist on the end is going to be something that a lot of people will hold on to as good advice too. So thanks for sharing that. If you did not have the position that you have um, that you currently hold, what would you be doing? You know, this is so interesting that it's, this, I think, I mean, it, it really is like this, but also in a more advanced way. So I'm very eager to, um, like my ideal world is where anybody getting ABA services is getting the best services because 
the organization, you know, has the systems that are sustainable, they're profitable, right? You know, we're not as a field um, called to work for free. Everybody has to make a, a living wage, right? So, so people are able to have a good job. The services are what they should be. Um, the payers are happy with quality work products and their, their members are getting care that is helping them live their best lives and providers are being able to live their passions every day. Like that to me is the end goal of um, trying to work towards shaping um, what I can, helping improve the field um, when it comes to this sector in healthcare. Yeah, well, you're doing it. So um, it's, oh. it's fun to watch and, and uh, I look forward to seeing what you're able to accomplish with all the solutions you're coming up with. Um, so I think that that's great. What color is aversive to you? Uh, this was not hard to think about. It's the color orange. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm just like, ah, orange. Like, ah, why? What? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Why did you do that? Like, I don't know. And there's no bad history with orange. Like my, my sister, I love my sister. She has multiple sclerosis. So March is um, MS Awareness Month. And um, so I love that. Well, you know, support her as much as I can. But I don't know, orange just feels a little um, like noisy, I guess. So what about you? What's your, what's your color? Oh, goodness. I was hoping that you weren't going to ask that. Um, you know, I think it depends. Um, if you were in my, my world um, and sharing a spreadsheet with me, if I'm using very dark colors, I'm feeling like I've got to focus. Um, and if I'm using light pastels, it means I'm feeling pretty good. Reds, I guess, you know what, as I talk that through, um, reds and yellows are very aversive mm -hmm. to me. And so when I open a spreadsheet and I see something red, I'm like, yes, I know it's important. You know, there's a lot of important things, um, you know, yellow, you know, all of that. It's like, I feel screamed at. <laughs> so I guess I would say red and yellow um, are definitely aversive in that in that way <laughs> that is that is interesting a color feeling like color screams at you i'm going to add that to how i quanti quantify orange <laughs> it's just yelling <laughs> at you orange. caution rebecca turn <laughs> yeah. around turn around um yeah <laughs> colors are they do well i don't know for me they definitely mean a lot um i put a lot into color so number five and thank you for asking me that um number five what is your go-to music or movie when you need to get amped up? Um, I would say, so one of them for sure is the movie Hoosiers. Have you heard of it or seen it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I don't know. I'm picturing Indiana. Who is there like a basketball movie or absolutely not? I have no idea. Yeah, it's a great, so it's an older movie and it's about this tiny little um, basketball team, a high school team that um, I think it's set in the 50s. And it's just, I think Gene Hackman's in it. It's just like a really um, heartfelt movie about hard work and persistence and what happens when you do those things with a great leader and how that pays off. And because I was in sports all through high school, grade school, high school, and college, that kind of athletic spirit speaks to me. So I'm like, yes, I'm going to go do some burpees. I'm going to go outside and I'm going to just... And then, like, the animals are looking at me, like, calm down, like, just calm down. But, like, I just feel it. Like, I feel it in my 
my heart. I love that movie. <laughs> I'm over here giggling because I, well, one, I'm going to have to go and, and look on Netflix and see if I can find that. But two, because I'm picturing you doing burpees outside with some, some sheep. But I also, I, you yeah. almost got away with this. I was, um, you know, researching and preparing for, for our talk together. And I saw that you did the hard 75. Oh, yeah. 75 hard. <laughs> 75 yeah. hard. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. So, um, I am curious because I am on the journey to better health. Um, and I started that, yeah. um, but 75 hard, that's hard. Um, literally. Um, so tell me like, what, what tips do you have out there for people who are like, I want to, I want to try this because, um, yeah. What would you say coach? So I would say if you're going to, if you're going to attempt it, there is no try. There is no quitting. There is no, you were going to do it. It is not like, oh, I hope I do. No, 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 no. Then don't do it. It is, if you want to um, do 75 hard, then that's what you're going to do. And I would say, um, for me, like I tried to learn as little as I could because I didn't want to psych myself out and get into the mentality of like, now I'm doing this. I'm really self-aware. It's like seven minutes into the first day, huh? you know, like, because <laughs> yeah, it really, it is a head thing. That's what I learned is that, um, you know, I did it at a time where professionally I was very busy. And if someone would have said like, you have to dedicate, you know, time to work out and all this other stuff, then like, there's no way, but it showed me that when you are really dedicated to doing something, there is a way it's the way you figure out because you're dedicated to do it. So, um, I wouldn't do it unless you have the way figured out, you know, cause I, the fear of failure that kept me from sticking with it. Uh, it's not healthy. <laughs> I was more terrified of failing <laughs> myself. I mean, I will cheer you on though. Cause it is, it is tough. It is very tough. Can we do a 15 day strong or something? Like, does it have to be 75? <laughs> is that a magic number? Can we do 22? I don't know. What what can we compromise here? The thing about, I guess, too, why I don't know that I would ever do it again for me personally. So do it once for sure. But it's contraindicated with how I think about things. So like, I like things that are science-backed, evidence-based. There's like Andrew Huberman has a podcast. He's a neurobiologist, I think, out of Stanford. Like everything he talks about is from the level of physiology and biology and what research says. And even it's, he's phenomenal. 75 hard is this guy who's super tough. Who's like, I'm going to do these things for 75 days. And there's really no like science-based rationale behind them. So that makes it a little like uh, less meaningful for me because I'm not understanding the logic of, okay, why do I have to have two separate workouts 45 minutes apart? Like, can I not just do them together? That kind of a thing. Like if there's no scientific basis for this, other than you just want to make it hard, like, Oh, that's dumb. <laughs> like in my head, like I like to see the. <laughs> that makes sense, though. I mean, it's a it's a habit, and it's um something that I'm horrible at, which is um uh, discipline. Um, I like routine, but I also hate routine. So I'm like, dis- you know, the discipline of a routine bothers me. So I kind of wonder if that, like, just get it get it done twice a day, keep it separate. Like, can you follow? Um, can you follow that? I don't know. I'm I'm. I'm no longer thinking about the 75 hard. If I'm being honest, like I instantly am like, I'm going to absolutely be defiant and not do that because I have to. 
Um, so I don't know if we can flip it and do don't do 75 hard and then I will do it. I don't know. Right. 75 fun. We'll have a 75 fun. Yeah, we'll we'll start that and see if we can if we can do that. Um, I think that makes that makes perfect sense. I don't know. Well, thank you so much for being on. Um, I'm, you know, sure that you gave such value to the listeners. Um, where where can they find you if they want to um, dive into more of great Rebecca-isms? Oh, well, thanks. Um, so I am on LinkedIn. I have a website that's raw, R-A-W, consultingsolutions.com. And I have Facebook and I'm on Instagram as well. And while I'm on all those platforms, I don't use them like a lot or it's just very sporadically, but please don't let that deter you. Reach out, be happy to connect with anybody. Um, you can also send me an email from my website. Glad to connect with anyone. That sounds fantastic and definitely worth the the connection and um, just a really kind of like going outside. Um, she's just a, a good light to step out and get a good fresh breath and a good perspective on on what we're doing here. So Thank you so much for joining again, Rebecca. It was a pleasure to have you on. All right. Thanks for tuning in to WTF ABA. Make sure to follow, subscribe, share, and join us every other Thursday as we continue to discuss and navigate the field of ABA and talent acquisition together. Until then, keep asking WTF ABA and don't forget to reinforce the behaviors you want to see and model them too. That's it for now. I'm Holly Beth and I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining.